Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime. Welcome once again to Wise Girl, we where, where we invite you to discover your own inner wisdom, your own inner wise girl or wise guy. I'm not the wise girl. The wisdom is already in you, and that's what we're here, just sort of trying to declutter the landscape a little bit so we can access it. Right now it's uh, September 28th, and I have a really... I don't know, I guess I'm just so excited. He's sort of a rock star in my world. His name is Bruce Ecker, and uh, MALMFT, co-originator of Coherence Therapy, a founding director of the Coherence Psychology Institute. He is the co-author of many clinical publications, including the volumes, Depth-Oriented Brief Therapy, How to Be Brief When You Were Trained to Be Deep, and the uh, Coherence Therapy Practice Manual and Training Guide. And then this is the latest unlocking the emotional brain eliminating symptoms at their roots radical for all of my meditators out there you know the buddhist teachings are a radical approach to well-being using memory reconsolidation which is the process that we are going to be talking about today bruce welcome thanks i'm delighted to be here with you francesca so your book Unlocking the Emotional Brain was just translated into six languages. You have everything from Europe to Asia, I believe, um, now uh, accessing your um, sort of consolidation, if you will, of these teachings, uh, of these learnings, if you will, on exactly what's happening in the brain when we have these radical changes that are life-altering for people where symptoms that have plagued people for decades go away. Yes, it's a remarkable development, we feel, in the history of psychotherapy that the neuroscientists have come up with research, now very extensively established, that shows the brain's innate process for profound unlearning. The neuroscientists themselves uh, often use the word erasing and erasure to describe the degree of profound unlearning that this process allows. And this was a revolution in the neuroscience of learning and memory when it was discovered in the last few years of the, 19, uh, of the 1990s. Uh, because until then, it had appeared from a century of research in learning and memory <clears throat> that uh, these emotional learnings, anything we learn with an emotional charge on it, is stored indelibly in subcortical memory, memory that's outside of awareness. Uh, a lot of research indicated that it looked, you know, unerasable. You could suppress it at best with counter-learning, but then between 1997 and 2000, a few studies showed, no, the brain after all does have an innate process to radically unlearn what had previously been learned. That's what memory reconsolidation is, the brain's built-in process for revising what was previously learned and is now carried in memory. I absolutely love what you're saying. And just to sort of expand this to the audience, you know, what we're really doing here is we're talking about ways in which, if you are in psychotherapy, there are different modalities. We can talk about those two, and we will, Bruce and I, um, and share with you that your neural synapses and structures can be opened like a little flower. You know how they do that in the morning when the sun comes out and then in the evening they close, right? When it goes down. So when they're open, they can be accessed, reconfigured a little bit in a way that doesn't sound quite as funky as I'm doing it right now. And then the flower can open with even broader, greater, grander, more beauty meaning you can live with more vitality in a way that is 
absolutely um, doable. But this is a new, as Bruce was saying, mode of integrating uh, these practices into psychotherapy, although as you do know, Bruce, some of these practices are probably ones that have, in some circles, been around for, for many years, understood by certain kinds of practitioners in different, in different settings. Yes, exactly. This process is new to the researchers in learning and memory. But what we've been doing is examining uh, published case studies from psychotherapy, uh, cases in which uh, there is transformational change. In other words, the, the client's, the therapy client's problem pattern or symptom ceases completely. And in addition, the underlying emotional reactivation, you know, the spell one goes into when one is triggered, also disappears and remains gone with no further effort to prevent it. That's what, those are the, the, the defining features, you could say, of transformational change. So we've been studying uh, cases of transformational change from many different therapy systems. And we can, uh, we've been showing that the steps of the memory reconsolidation process are detectably apparent in these case studies from all sorts of therapy systems, even though that set of steps is actually not part of each therapy's description of itself. So in a way we've, thanks to the research, we now know how to recognize the, the bones of transformational change. It's, it's a non-theoretical uh, description. Whereas therapy systems have theoretical frameworks and metaphors with which they describe this process. Uh, we've had some therapists say after learning this from us, that uh, they now feel they have a kind of x-ray vision that can see through the theoretical metaphors and concepts of any given therapy system and see through the, con the specific uh, techniques of any system and recognize the core process that's actually going on. And I just love it at the end of workshops when, when therapists who use different methods say, now we see why it works when it works. Absolutely. And, and, and so we're going to use some examples to actually bring this into the, the fray, um, because I know that some of my listeners and viewers really enjoy uh, saying, okay, so I'm listening to you, what do you mean? And you have plenty of examples, for example, in your paper here, Coherence Therapy for Anxiety and Panic. And um, you talk about, for example, uh, you know, women who uh, have been in a certain pattern for a long time, who uh, you know, have suffered uh, this idea of one woman who had a lot of anxiety when her husband would come home and she was afraid that if she didn't do something, it was like, you know, if she didn't worry and suffer for the family, that the family wouldn't be safe. And you know, she had this emotional learning where she, she got into this panic attack all the time about her husband coming home from work or not, right? And then she saw you. So what happened? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. That example, I think you, you've picked that up from our website. Is that right? We have a section of case examples there. That particular example, it's a good one, but I have one in mind that I think might be even more effective for your audience to make these things very clear. There are so many examples, but the one that I have freshly in mind is, boy, I'm, uh, they're, they're, they're popping up and I'm having to choose, but there's a, okay, I'm going to use this one. This is a man who came for therapy finally, after lots of trouble with his wife and, and his boss and other people, 
because he was finally made to realize by them lovingly, but with a lot of annoyance finally, that he kept doing behaviors that were very provocative and anger provoking and hurtful. For example, uh, he would uh, uh, not tell his wife that he has to stay late at work and he comes home hours late without having told her. Could have called her easily and let her know, right? And when that happens many times, you know, finally, I'm sorry doesn't work anymore. And it's clear there's some kind of compulsive behavior problem. So finally, he came in about this. And what we found was, uh, you know, I, what, what I had him try out doing is, is, is revisit a recent instance of this. And uh, imagine calling his wife the first moment he realizes he's going to be late. I had him try out that experience, not as a intellectual exercise of figuring out, but just in experientially replay it, try out the actual experience in imagination. That particular technique is one we call symptom deprivation, right? Because it's an experience of being without the problem pattern. Uh, what he bumped into was a feeling of, of discomfort, which amazed him. You'd think it would be fine to, to do that. Well, we followed this feeling of discomfort. We deepened into it. And bottom line of that discovery process, what he bumps into and finally finds words for is this emotional truth, which in his words, not a theoretical inference from me, in his words coming out of him, the only way to get caring attention is to do something really bad. And this lit up all kinds of stuff in his deep memory. That was one of his core beliefs. Core beliefs from childhood. He, there were, he had many siblings. The parents were not particularly good at empathy or emotional attunement or nurturing. Not a lot of warmth going on there. Plus, you know, like four other siblings. So lost in the crowd. And he saw, he observed that the, 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 the brother or sister who causes trouble or distress gets the attention, you know, the squeaky wheel in a negative way. So some people call this negative bonding, where you learn that the emotional connection comes from some kind of negative interaction. Well, to children, getting attention is like the oxygen line. It's the most crucial thing. So whatever gets attention, they lock onto and they learn, but it's not conceptual learning. A child doesn't think, oh, it's by doing something bad. It's, it's deeper than that. It's wordless learning. And so when the child grows into the adult, there's no conceptual representation or knowing of this at all. It's kind of automatic. It's, a, it's an implicit knowing. It's a blueprint that's outside of awareness. Well, it popped into awareness. And that's what we do in the first stage of coherence therapy. And many ther therapies do this in their own ways. Bring the implicit emotional learning into explicit awareness, not as a conceptual insight, but as a felt experience that is also put into words. So it's, you know, you, you, you wind up knowing what you know, and it feels new and old at the same time. It's a strange experience. And in Buddhist cycles, we call, circles, we call this an insight. And that's what you also call it, that aha moment, when you realize that, wait, I'm doing this for safety reasons or yes. for attention and for love and attachment reasons, not yes. because it's necessarily effective in my present day. But what you're saying is because it's in this limbic system, this emotional brain, this midbrain, this mouse brain, as Rick Hansen would say, subcortical, it's not part of what's our online sort of 
prefrontal cortex executive function in our day-to-day world. And so therefore it's outside of our awareness. So what you're doing is calling it up into awareness and investigating where did this core belief come from and having that real sense and that juiciness somatically of what it feels like to have that sense of, of uh, recognition that this is what's provoking this sort of stalling, if you will, kind of behavior of being bad for really looking for love and attention. Exactly, exactly. And even at this stage, the recognition of what we call the coherence, the underlying emotional coherence, uh, seeing that, oh, this is something I deeply learned to meet a deep need. That is so depathologizing. You know, usually people have very pathologizing notions about their problem patterns. What's wrong with me? You know, I'm either bad, sick, stupid, or crazy by conventional external point of view. But this is the true inside story that the person directly bumps into. And it's, it's, this, this is therapeutic even at this point to see the coherence. Yeah, and I just want to underscore that before you continue with the process with this example and how you worked with this man, because I've always said that, you know, for the most part, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, but it's the way in which you were programmed and conditioned and the way that that programming was adaptive at one time, as you explained with this man as a young child, and no longer suits our present day life, as his wife and his bosses were telling him at work. And so what worked once doesn't work now. So what we're doing in this whole memory reconsolidation process, whatever you use, whether it's internal family systems, somatic experiencing, gestalt, uh, AEDP, whatever modality that sort of has this, which you have mapped out in this process, five steps, I believe, pretty much. Maybe there's more that I'm missing, but you can fill fill me in on that that when you're doing that particular process, whatever it is, you're not only having the insight and the awareness, but then you're doing the next step, which is you're replacing it. Right. So go on. That's right. right. (laughs) Not Not just fighting it and suppressing it, not just struggling against it, uh, not just regulating it, but actually replacing it. And I'll explain how that process works. One aspect that I find so interesting and I think is particularly relevant to the um, to everyone uh, in- interested in mindfulness uh, or meditation is that the insight, which is experiential insight at this point, not just intellectual insight, it's living emotional truth that lights up lucidly for the person, that even that level of insight does not in itself necessarily bring about change. We we regularly see the client reach this level of insight and awareness and sustain it in day-to-day life between sessions and nothing changes. It still feels true, still feels like for this man, the only way to get real attention is to do something really bad. And the problem patterns or symptoms that this emotional learning or schema generates still happen. Uh, I think that's a very important observation. Uh, The process that does transform it and replace it requires further steps. And memory reconsolidation research shows these steps very explicitly. It consists of what we sometimes call uh, disconfirmation or contradictory knowing. And In principle, it's actually very simple. 
It means that the person, while in touch with this knowing, while in it, while it's reactivated, the person has to experience in any way a personal knowing that's unmistakably real to them that contradicts what this piece of target emotional learning knows and expects about the world. The only way to get any attention is to do something bad. So after this schema or unit of, of implicit learning became explicit, I set about finding contradictory knowledge. That's the next step that you do if this process is your guiding framework. So I asked him, there are many different ways to find that contradictory knowledge. What I used with him uh, is to simply say, tell me, have you ever had any experiences where caring attention came to you from somebody who matters to you without first doing something really bad, right? It's a simple question. There's no exotic or highly technical pieces to that, but it is looking for very specific disconfirmation. And that's very important for this process to be reliably effective. Right, because he's attached to the belief that he is only going to be able to get loving attention if he acts badly. And so you're bringing into his awareness the inquiry as to whether or not he's ever received love and attention without having to act badly for it. Yes, exactly. Have him come up with the answer to that. Exactly, right. And, what, you know, it's totally true to refer to this as a belief. It's a core belief. But to the person, it doesn't feel like just a belief. That's what's so curious about these emotional learnings. To me, this is one of the most fascinating and mysterious things about the mind and the brain. Emotional learnings are experienced as the truth of how the world is. It doesn't feel at all like a belief or a model or a schema. It feels like the truth of the world. We'll get to the moment where suddenly it's clear to the client that it was just a model or a belief, but not yet. So I asked that question, you know, have you ever had the experience of getting attention without doing something bad? And now that this schema is explicitly conscious in its specifics, counterexamples start to pop up. Things that went right by in their original occurrence, right? Barely noticed. But now that he's in touch with what this piece of the learning is made of, these things pop up and there's a kind of a wait a minute experience the client has. He said, well, yeah, actually, um, uh, uh, my, my, my boss came in to see me a few weeks ago and he said, uh, you, you know, he, he pursued me. Uh, he said, you know, you, you told me there was something you wanted to talk about that's important, so let's, have, let's talk about it. <clears throat> and he said, I was surprised. And, he, you know, he really listened. And then other examples came up. Um, <clears throat> let's see, what were they? One was, um, he, oh, yeah, uh, he, uh, he, he, his wife held a birthday party for him, his previous birthday. And all his friends showed up. And he didn't have to do anything bad to get all that caring attention. And there were about two others. So these were important things that were very real to him. Unmistakably real, you know. This isn't positive thinking. No. This isn't trying to make what you wish is true feel true. This is what's recognizing, we would call this, you know, in, in the um, meditation or mindfulness communities, uh, you know, there's... Uh, 
grasping aversion and, and, and delusion or ignorance. So when you're missing it, when you're just sort of like zoning out or you don't catch it or whatever, it's outside of our awareness, we forget that the good things happen because of our negativity bias. We glom on to the bad things that happen, right? And so we kind of want to be able to, with our intention, our attention, call up these moments that challenge this schema, this thought system, this emotional learning that feels like it is the way of the world for us. And in fact, how we've been conditioned and programmed to operate, frankly, out of safety and out of need at one time, and then juxtaposes that so that you're looking at it and saying, but wait, in this instance, I didn't have to act poorly to get attention and love. People showed up for my birthday party anyway. That must mean they love me even when I don't act badly. Or maybe exactly. even more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. These emotional learnings, before they are made conscious, <clears throat> exist as if in a sealed bubble in the implicit memory system. And they don't juxtapose with the contradictory experiences. By making them conscious in this way, and then accessing the contradictory knowings, we create exactly what you said. We call it a juxtaposition experience. It's a very curious experience to actually experience. It's, it's, it's a puzzling, and in, in the first moments, it's, it's baffling to the client. It, because, and well, it, here's the usual way I, I facilitate the juxtaposition experience, right after we find where the contradictory knowledge is, as I just described. I, I said to him, all right, so let's go over a few things that seem very true for you. One part of you just knows and has known all your life the only way to get any attention is to do something really bad. And that feels so true. And yet, you also have your own experiences that a caring attention, quality attention, comes without doing anything really bad also. And both are so real to you. Well, right there is the first juxtaposition experience. I'm deliberately cueing both at once. And the client is like, doesn't even know how to make sense of this. Well, <clears throat> the memory reconsolidation research tells us that in those moments, the neural encoding of the target learning, the only way to get attention is to do something really bad, is literally unlocking physiologically, neurochemically, transforming from what the uh, memory researchers call the consolidated state, which is the state of the encoding in long-term memory. After all, this, this, this learning is preserved and, and, and highly active decades after he learned it. Yeah, we learned it at seven and we're still doing it at 70, <laughs> or hopefully yes. not, but. <laughs> yes, and, and now we know from the research that that's not the dysfunction of the learning and memory system, that's the way evolution shaped it to function. This man's memory system was functioning as designed. There was nothing broken or dysfunctional going on at all. And I want to underline that for folks because evolutionary, evolutionarily, the brain functions, generally speaking, for the majority of people as designed evolutionarily. So even though we always think that there's something wrong with us or that we have this quote unquote bad behavior or problematic behavior, and this could be anything from addictions or compulsions of any degree, but anything that's problematic for a person in their life, whether it's rage or even shame, right? That whole like withdrawal and the hypo arousal, whatever it is, whatever, you know, particular box of cargo that you carry, that this is something that 
really at a radical level when the synaptic opening happens can begin to be disconfirmed and restructured. So continue, please. Yeah, well, that those first moments of that mismatch, that juxtaposition, uh, that is what the researchers call a mismatch experience or a prediction error experience. In other words, what the emotional learning system knows and expects is the schema. You know, only if I do something bad do I get attention. And now, by juxtaposing, the, it creates this mismatch with what that expectation is. That's the trigger. That's the brain's own signal to unlock the synapses or neural encoding. And that unlocking renders the neural encoding susceptible to being re-encoded by new learning. And that state of unlock, where they call it uh, destabilization or deconsolidation, that lasts for about five hours before it automatically reconsolidates. That's why it's called memory reconsolidation. So we don't need five hours. A therapy session usually lasts more like 15 minutes. So what happens next is simply a few repetitions of the same juxtaposition experience. Now that the unlocking is underway, we just need a few more repetitions of this counter-learning that will rewrite and re-encode the schema. Uh, and so that's simple to do in a very natural way. Uh, I, I led the juxtaposition the first time in the way that I mentioned, and the client is fascinated by this both at once wait a minute experience. It's very natural to stay focused on it. I'll just empathize with it again. I'll say, so, you know, how is it for you to, to been, have been expecting this all your life, and yet sitting here with me, you're recognizing so many important experiences where it went the other way. What's, what's that like for you to see? So there again, there's another juxtaposition. The client talks about it. In talking about it, I'll deliberately refer to both again. Very natural. It doesn't feel like a technique is happening. And, you know, two or three more juxtapositions are freshly re-cued. That's it. Usually, that's all it takes for the target learning to either be completely dissolved or to be so weakened that now it just doesn't dominate behavior and states of mind anymore. The complications can set in. There are cases where we have to do other steps to get this process to completely go all the way. But that's the gist of it. I love it, Bruce. I mean, honestly, this is the thing. So many people think I am who I am. I don't know who said that, Popeye or somebody, right? Like, you know, I mean, it was, you know, and, and, and I know so many people, they double down in their rigidity. And the thing is, is because we understand so much about neuroplasticity now, because we understand that, okay, so we're born with our brainstem kind of, you know, more online, but this emotional brain prefrontal cortex, all that is subject to, you know, a lot of development in our, you know, first 18 months and couple years up to five years up until we're 25. And so then what you're doing is like I said, with this little flower analogy, this unlocking when you're opening it up and there's that window where it's like, okay, I'm open now, you know, like, what are you going to do when you insert that corrective experience, if you will, right. That's already real in the person's life that they just sort of forgot about. Oh, my friends at my birthday party love me. They showed up anyway, even though I can be a jerk sometimes it doesn't matter. They love me. I didn't have to be a jerk to get them to show that they love me. I'm a good guy, actually, in my core, probably. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. 
Anyway, they can fill in the blanks, but they have the guy, you know, realize that his friends were, were there for him, that that disconfirms that all of his negative behaviors have to be um, from this emotional learning as a kid present in order for him to access love. And I'm telling you, I have seen this even with my own clients. This is a game changer for people. It is a game changer. People who can't date, date. People who've been assaulted or have experiences with, you know, developmental traumas, they move forward into relationship. People who can't travel because of a traumatic experience there start to be able to move around and do stuff and zip along on airplanes. These are things that aren't who they are. They're just things that their emotional brain has learned and can unlearn. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I agree. The, the change is as profound as, as you just described. And, um, but it's not, you know, it's not, a, a, some people read about this process and come in for therapy and say, go ahead, please do it to me. <laughs> it's not quite like that. Uh, as I hope came across in the example, the client's deep active participation is crucial. The therapist facilitates the client's own native ability to bring attention deep inside to these specific emotional learnings. And sometimes a, a sizable amount of emotional distress is involved in going to that material and fully facing it and living with it. Uh, so sometimes the process needs to be dialed back to small steps so that the, the client's experience feels workable at every step in, in the most, uh, difficult cases, the, the target emotional learning that's underneath maintaining the problem patterns contains really traumatic memory and, and intense distress. So we have to go in small enough steps so that the accessing process really feels workable to the client at every step. So, you know, all yeah, kinds of skills is sometimes needed. Yeah, we, we do that. We, you know, the titration or pendulation. So you're not, you're not just, um, you know, you're not being dropped off into the quicksand and you're, you know, you're being allowed to sink. That's not what happens here. So anybody who's listening, who's curious about this, nor is it a magic pill where you just pop it and everything is done, nor is it hypnotherapy. And, you know, it's particular to just what's happening in um, your neural structures. And so there's just a process for, for what happens. What I'd like you to get into now, if you don't mind, is a little bit about how this is different from exposure therapy or, over, you know, what do they call it, cathartic, you know, sort of release or um, the suppression stuff, um, the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, those kinds of things, because there's been a lot of money and research that have been put into those and they're very popular. Um, but why did these modalities that use this sort of memory reconsolidation process working to integrate really the left and the right brain through the corpus callosum and all these other kinds of funky brain structures that um, you know go side to side and not just through our midline which is the default mode network which makes us just jump along with what's our daily do um, how do these work um, in ways that those other therapies don't and why is the change lasting whereas those are more mm, subject to recidivism so to speak Relax. that's a great question Francesca um, the way we conceptualize that is, the, is, is through the, the concept of counteractive change versus transformational change. The, all those different methods that you just mentioned are important examples of counteractive change, which 
the definition of which is building up a preferred behavior or state of mind that you're going to try to make strong enough so that it'll happen instead of the unwanted behavior or state of mind. And that works to some extent. You can do that. Uh, that counteractive process of change requires many repetitions, many rehearsals in order to become strong enough. So it's, uh, it's a matter of, you know, Hebb's law, uh, neurons that fire together, a wire together. So you got to make them fire together many, many times to build up the pattern to be strong enough. That process of change is fundamentally different. And it doesn't actually replace the target learning. It competes with it. You're creating a new learning that you're hoping to make stronger than the target learning, which is still there. And because it's still there, and because it's emotionally intense, the target learning is passionate, right? Uh, just think of our example. To a child, the only way to get attention is to do something bad. Well, getting attention is urgent. And if I don't do something really bad, I'll be forgotten and left out and alone again. That's powerful. Um, just learning some good advice behavior, you know, call your wife, okay? <laughs> That's not going to override that. In fact, uh, what I did with that fellow that I didn't mention the first time through is I gave him the homework task. Uh, before the first juxtaposition experience, I gave him the homework of on the way home from work, just notice your need for attention, right? I wanted him to integrate the core substance of this emotional learning, the valid need for caring attention and connection. And I taught him to monitor that need, right? Because that problem of wanting and needing caring attention and connection is totally valid. His solution to that problem was the problem right? Not the need at the core, the doing something bad to meet that need. So I had him recognize the difference between the problem and the solution, which is a very useful distinction, I find, in uh, facilitating this process. So... And I love that just because, you know, the little seven-year-old or however old he was, did the best he could with what he had, you know? And so there's so much compassion for that. And as I found with clients, like when they open to that and they're like, oh, wow, my little one back then, he did what he thought he needed to do because he needed to survive and he didn't want to be abandoned. You can't survive. We're mammals. We need our parents and our caregivers. Yeah. So then that opens that up too. And that can be part of the process that you say it's not all puppies and kittens and rainbows where yes, it's a little bit challenging sometimes to go through this um, emotionally for clients, but it's also very transformative and lasting and permanent in the ways that other kinds of therapies, which you'll continue to talk about um, aren't necessarily when they're just suppressing. Right, right. So yeah, counteractive change leaves the target learning, the, the core of the problem intact. So life will come up with new triggers for that, and it will trigger, and it'll take over because it's emotionally so strong, and you get a relapse. And that sets up the client to feel like he or she is failing, right? Uh, and that doesn't help self-esteem. And The transformational process, the reconsolidation process, as I mentioned, operates in a fundamentally different way. The, the, the target learning 
literally no longer exists anymore once the rewriting has happened. So it's not there to re-trigger. In fact, one of the tests we do of whether the process has uh, occurred thoroughly and successfully is we deliberately try to re-trigger it, re-cue it, uh, either imaginally or we uh, ask the client to go back into a situation that previously reliably triggered the, the, the emotional state and the symptoms. And when we re-cue it, for example, with this man, I would have him uh, uh, imagine uh, he's staying at work late, he realizes he's staying late, and now again, go into that familiar old state of mind where you notice that and now you're not going to call your wife and tell her because by not telling her, you're going to get caring attention when she's really upset with you when you get home. Otherwise, she might just continue doing whatever she's doing. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with the wife or what she's doing or the marriage or anything. It has to do with such old stuff that's not even in your awareness. Right, right. So I try, so I recue it, and he tries to go back into it and feel it in the original way, and he looks up and says, that seems absurd now. Why, what was I thinking? Why, why would I, what? It's not there to feel anymore. It doesn't light up. It's not a state of mind that even exists or an ego state, as it's sometimes called. So that's how profound the change is. It's non-counteractive. And as I said, counteractive techniques are partially effective. They, they do bring about some degree of symptom diminishment, but they're not stable. It's not rock solid. And the client has to continue making the effort of using the new preferred pattern to prevent the old pattern from happening. Whereas the transformational change process truly is, is the change is effortless to maintain once it happens. Yeah, it's in Buddhism, there's the thing that, you know, once you cross the river with the canoe, you can put down the canoe, you don't need to carry it on your back, you know, like right. you gotta get in there and paddle and cross, but you don't have to keep on lugging it around, you know? Yeah. Um, so a couple things you, I know that you use, and you mentioned this um, in terms of this isn't necessarily like a, you know, you pop a pill and it's, and, it's, and it's done, right? It's a little bit of a process, but it is a process that can be used for a particular schema slash, you know, habit slash behavioral challenge that you're having, whatever it might be. In this case, this guy's association with, mm, I don't know, passive aggressiveness or not getting back to people for getting its love and attention or something. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your note cards? Um, the number of weeks that uh, somebody in this kind of a situation might be seeing you and how you would follow up with them over what period of time. And um, maybe on average, the number of different schemas or challenges or main triggers that people might bring to the table because you might have a basket of like a half a dozen core things maybe I would imagine or maybe less or more depending on your level of trauma but um and then work on them what successively but not obviously simultaneously so can you talk a little bit about those things sure yeah there's a huge range in the number of schemas involved and the number of sessions that it takes across different therapy clients uh, when the problem pattern has only one emotional learning or schema underneath it, maintaining it, driving it, uh, then the process can usually require just a few sessions. I'd say most frequently six to eight sessions, but in some cases just one or two sessions if everything just happens to go just swimmingly. 
Um, but in more complex cases, there are more schemas. Uh, I'd say the, the most complex situation that therapists uh, encounter fairly frequently is what we call complex attachment trauma. <clears throat> it's also called uh, developmental trauma or relational trauma. And <clears throat> these are situations where the person experienced um, significant levels of mistreatment and abuse of different forms built into family life repetitively for many years. And in, in, in these situations, the client typically has anywhere from 12 to 20 hefty schemas. You know, each type of suffering experienced in the family or in the community creates emotional learnings, right? There's the living knowledge that there's vulnerability to that suffering, and there's living knowledge of what it takes to try to be safe from it or avoid it. And as I said earlier, there's the problem and the solution. Each schema or emotional learning has a, a problem-defining section and a solution-defining section. So every type of suffering creates a schema. And typically there's, I'd say, 12 to 20 schemas, and they're pretty intense, and some of them really are traumatic and very uncomfortable to access directly. So the process not only is very extensive with all these schemas, but has to be slowed down for some of them to, you know, make, to stay in that window of tolerance you mentioned. And then, in addition, some of these schemas are tangled together, and won't uh, a given schema won't necessarily be uh, able to release and unlock and be unlearned until it, the, the schema it's coupled in is also unlocked and unlearned. So you got to sort of work both in, in a back and forth way. So keeping track of all this is is fairly complex. The work does get nonlinear. Uh, I think one of your questions was, you know, do you do one symptom at a time? And that is how I try to navigate the process when it's that complex, to ask the client which, you know, which problem pattern feels most important for us to work on now and try to stay focused on. And we start from that and find the underlying emotional learnings driving that and look for disconfirmations of specifically that. But then life happens between sessions. The client may come back in and say, I got to deal with this now. It happened and I'm all upset about this. So, you know, you have to cooperate with life. And often life uh, cooperates with the therapy because, like we saw in the example that I laid out, life does generate disconfirmations. And once a schema is con uh, conscious, the client will come into therapy the next session and say, you know, something really strange happened and share a disconfirmation. And because you're familiar as the therapist with this process, you know what gold is being handed over and you grab it and guide a juxtaposition experience. You build, because for the client, it didn't quite go that far, but the client knows something's really strange here. Uh, and, and hands it over, and then you take it from there and guide the juxtaposition. So life often cooperates and hands over exactly what's needed to go all the way with the process on a given schema. Yeah, I love that. And and just the you you do give homework of, of note cards sometimes to sort of let people read over these disconfirming experiences or revisit them. Um, explain just how that works and why that can be effective. 
Sure, yeah. yeah that, that's a feature of coherence therapy in particular. The overall process I've been describing uh, can be facilitated by practitioners of many different experiential therapy systems. In coherence therapy, which we designed to really target and, and explicitly guide the therapist to do the steps of this process, which happen in a more embedded, implicit way in many therapies, we use uh, index cards, either a physical index card or an emailed index card after the session. And the card simply uh, at least maintains the work done in the, in the session and in many cases carries it forward. For example, again, within the example that I gave earlier, at the point where the client had accessed and put words on, the only way to get good attention is to do something really bad. Well, those words went on an index card that he took home. You know, I, I wrote it and handed it to him. <clears throat> and I said, just look at this every day for several days and don't try to do anything with it other than just get back in touch with it the way you are right now. Just let those words bring you back into the feeling knowing of this, how, what, you know, what an emotional truth that is in your life. Don't try and figure anything out, you know, necessarily. If something more comes, great, but don't try and use this to counteract it or get rid of it. We'll get there. For now, just make this a familiar piece of your world in day-to-day -day life. So that's the card used to maintain, uh, to, to forward integration of the discovered material. We can also create a card right after the session where we get to the juxtaposition experience. <clears throat> the juxtaposition goes on the card. The words would be something like, all along, it seemed so clear to me that I better do something bad as the only way to get good attention from anybody. But now I'm realizing that I got good attention in other, many other ways, and I would list some of those other ways that he mentioned on the card. So looking at that every day repeats the juxtaposition experience several more times. Uh, so we find that the cards really help make the work effective, and clients adore these cards. They, they you know, they, they come to ask, they ask for them, you know, can I have a card, you know? And in ther coherence therapy, it's pretty much uh, a standard practice to create a card after every session, but just clients just eat that up. It's, it's terrific. I love that. Yeah, you're giving them a little a little goodie bag uh, yeah. to take home. Yeah, and you know, there's just there's so much here. We're running out of time, but um, you know, I, I guess I just really want to underscore that um, really, you know, it's kind of like Marshall Rosenberg from Nonviolent Communication. He says, you know, all everything is an unmet need. You know, what are you trying to just, we just don't know what the unmet need is. Right. And so like, you know, when there's conflict and problems and people are fighting or whatever, uh, what's the unmet need? And so what you're really doing is somatically and, you know, you're inquiring, you know, where when the recesses of your of your learned emotional memory, what was the unmet need? You needed love. OK, it wasn't met. OK, you knew that you couldn't get it unless you acted bad. OK, no problem. Fine. Now that we figure that part out, we can introduce a new option. You have alternatives. And that is so liberating and so freeing for people because it moves them into the present moment, which is what mindfulness is all about. It moves them into this radical transformation that the Buddha talks about when he talks about being, you know, sort of nirvanic, you know, bliss and all of that. Well, what is it really other than to live without dysregulation? to be able to live within your window of tolerance, to be able to live in a way where you can be relational to what's actually here 
and not just be triggered and reactive all the time, where you can respond skillfully and not unskillfully out, yeah. out of a natural way without too much like, oh my God, I better not say this or do this. You're not even thinking about it. Like you said, that guy was like, hmm, not even, wouldn't even occur to me to think this way anymore. Right, right. It just disappears. Whereas previously, he was going into a troubled state of anxiety and unmet need on a daily basis. And that would take over his state of mind. And when that disappears, he's much more available to live in well-being. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, we're wrapping up. Um, I just want to mention, this is really something that you can apply to depression, anxiety across the board, right? I mean, what, what other kinds of um, issues have people presented that this applies? Oh, yes, yes. We've seen a vast range of different problem patterns and symptoms prove to be generated by emotional learnings. Things you wouldn't, by, count, by common sense, things you wouldn't think are generated adaptively by emotional learnings, right? Uh, anxiety, panic attacks, depression, compulsive eating, compulsive behaviors of all kinds, um, you name it, um, sexual problems, anger problems, uh, many things that people tend to assume are caused by either uh, inherited temperament problem or uh, biochemical, uh, you know, neurotransmitter problems. Well, we find the underlying emotional learning and immediately after that particular learning has been disconfirmed and juxtaposed and just no longer feels real to the client, the symptom disappears. I think that's pretty good proof that the real <laughs> basis of the symptom was memory, yeah, the contents of memory, rather than these other types of causation. I'm not saying that those other types of causation never happen. What I'm saying is that a wide range of symptoms prove to be caused by emotional learning, much more than is widely understood at this point. Beautiful. Bruce, um, just let people know where they can find you, where they can find your work, where they can learn more about this. Our website has a wide range of articles and resources about this, including a directory of therapists who use these methods. And that is coherenceinstitute.org. Coherenceinstitute, one word, dot org. And I will put that link up um, when I post this. Again, the book is called Unlocking the Emotional Brain. Clinicians can certainly uh, get a lot out of it. But if you are a layperson and you want to understand your own neurophysiology better and why you do what you do and how you can undo what you do and change what you might do, you're invited to read it also and uh, learn more about this process because I really do think that it's transformative. And because it's so new, only within the last couple of decades, you know, it's, uh, it's really just taking off now. So thank you for all you do and for all of your work. Bruce Ecker, I so much appreciate you being here on Wise Girl today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care.